You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. On December 30th, there was a debate held between Taiwan's three presidential candidates, Lai Ching-te, the Democratic Progressive Party nominee, Ho Yui, the Kuomintang nominee, and Ko Wen-se, the Taiwan People's Party nominee. The three candidates started with eight minutes each to present their candidacy. That was followed by a media question and answer session. And then in the second half, each candidate had a chance to question each other. I sat down and spoke with political commentator Courtney Donovan-Smith, who shared his thoughts and observations about the debate. Okay, on today's episode of Talking Taiwan, I'm happy to welcome back Courtney Donovan-Smith. Welcome to the podcast, Courtney. It's great to be back. Yeah, thank you so much. So today was the first presidential debate, and so I know you have a lot of thoughts on this. So maybe we could start right now by talking about where the candidates stand with the polls. Okay, now this is interesting because the widely respected My Formosa polls, or actually technically Formosa polls, but they use My in their domain name, so everyone calls them My Formosa. <laughs> the Formosa polls, they've started showing William Lai strengthening in his support, and he's bouncing at around 40%. And then uh, Ho had it dropping off. So there's this widening gap between the two of them, which shows Lai much farther ahead than he was not that long ago, where they were pretty close to each other in the Formosa polls. Now, the thing is that I do the Taiwan News poll of polls, and it's only Formosa that's showing Lai strengthening. None of the other polls are showing that. So basically, in the which I just submitted tonight, it'll probably be out tomorrow morning, uh, our time. In the latest Taiwan News poll of polls, Lai is actually staying stable. But the other polls are actually uh, agreeing that Ho's support is weakening. And interestingly, Ke's support has been ticking up a little bit as well. And so they mostly agree on those two things. But Formosa is really the outlier when it comes to William Lai or Lai Ching does polling numbers. Now, there is another poll, another individual poll that came out from Credir Media, better known as CM Media. And that outlet um, shows actually Ke about 1.7% behind Lai and him in second place. But in the latest Taiwan poll of polls of polls that have been taken in the last 15 days that are at least somewhat credible, eight of them show Lai in first place, Ho in second place, and Ke in third place. There's a UDN poll that shows Lai and Ho tied. And then there's that one I just mentioned, which had Ke in second place. The Taiwan News poll of polls right now has uh, lied around just uh, about 35% roughly. And Ho just over 28 and Ke at just over 22. And so I heard that something like 10% of the eligible voters are undecided. So do you think that the undecided voters could actually make a difference? Okay, I'm actually working on a uh, on a column on on this. Like, what percentage? Because if Ho, you, I mean, obviously we can't completely rule out Ku at this point. But um, you know, if Ho were to try and close that gap with Lai, what percentage of the population could or could he possibly win? Keeping in mind that some of them are probably going to go for lie and maybe they'll go with cook now in the latest poll of polls the undecideds are at about 12 percent 
Now, if what's you know what we sort of inelegantly translate from from the Chinese the dump save effect, which is strategic voting, uh, which is where say for example you're a supporter of Ke, but he he's too far behind in the polls. And, you know, let's say that supporter really doesn't want Lai to win or vice versa, really doesn't want Ho to win. They may strategically vote for their second preferred candidate rather than, say, in this particular example, Ke. So I did some in- interesting crunching, but the, the polls have been a little bit sporadic over the last few days. So I'm going to have to recalculate it all for this piece. Now, I estimated um, when I started doing the calculations, Lai and Ho were about 4.5% apart, where that has widened noticeably since I started doing the calculations. But using those numbers, and that's obviously a few days ago, now I calculated that now this number won't be exactly correct, the chances of it are, but I came up with a 16.6% of the population was up for grabs potentially for either Ho or for Lai. And now that's assuming that there is a dump save effect. Now where I came up with these numbers is uh, I looked at the percentage of voters who hadn't made up their minds who are definitely going to vote and the ones who say they might vote. And I picked a sort of middling number of 65% will show up. And then I looked at Cub. Now, there's a term that's used here in, in local politics, which is an iron vote. Now, what an iron vote is, is basically a strong supporter who's definitely not going to change their vote, period. Right? They're going to vote for their candidate no matter what. 41% of Cub's supporters said they planned to vote for Cub, but they didn't count themselves as an iron vote. So looking at these two numbers, I came up with, again, 16.6% of the population that they could either potentially get from the undecideds or from Cub. Now, of course, that 16.6% won't be correct. I mean, it could be somewhere between 15 and 18%, you know, because it is just an estimate. Now, at the time, you know, again, this is a few days ago, I estimated that out of that 16 point sum to close that 4 point something percent gap between Ho and Lai, that would mean that to get net for Ho to get over Lai would be he'd have to get three quarters of that available vote, which is a tough climb. Now, it gets worse because Timothy Rich uh, came out with a poll in the news lens, which suggested that 57% of Ke supporters would prefer Lai over Ho. So... Um, Ho really would have his, his work cut out for him. And then just over the last few days, when I had to work on some other pieces and doing some media appearances, that gap has widened and I'm going to have to recrunch the numbers, uh, hopefully tomorrow or the day after. And my suspicion is, is this, that the numbers are going to be even worse, uh, if Ho wants to close the gap. So if you're in the Ho camp, it, it's not looking great. Now, of course, you know, there's some huge caveats in what I just said. Of that 41% of the Ke supporters who say that they aren't, they don't consider themselves iron votes, a lot of them may still yet decide that they want to stick with them. There's no guarantee that all those 41% are going to do strategic voting. 
you know, for the dump save effect. So this is kind of a maximum, I think. And I could be totally off on the percentage of, you know, of undecideds who will show up on polling day. I pick 65% because it's a little bit lower than the average of the last couple of elections. But I mean, if it's raining that day, you know, these are people who have not made up their mind this late in the game. So, you know, the turnout could be lower, you know, a certain percentage of them, the ones who said they're definitely going to vote, you know, there was a, a decent chunk of them. But again, that number is also kind of iffy. And they could, in theory, go to any of the candidates. So at this point, the numbers look pretty good for Lai, but he has to really lock down his base, peel off some of those undecideds for himself. And if he can peel off some supporters, ideally for the Lai camp, at least as many or at least enough that it blocks her from getting enough to overtake it. As we mentioned earlier, today was the presidential debate. So I was wondering if you could share some of your reflections on that and what were some of the key questions that were asked and how you thought each of the candidates performed? Um, well, in terms of how they performed, overall, I think that your average person is going to look at the three candidates and think, oh, my guy did the best. And the reason I say that is because I, I didn't think any of the three had a particularly breakout performance. I thought they were all pretty good. Kowenja, as usual, had a few strange things to say and revised history at one point. But, uh, you know, overall, they did pretty solid presentations. This was very much unlike the first policy presentation, which I gave the edge in that one to Kowenja. Uh I thought he did better in that. Um, and, you know, in the three rounds and you could actually physically see in, you know, in the policy presentation, Ho's hands were shaking in round one and he was blinking incessantly. And then Lai, he had this kind of fake forced, jokey, smiley, fake, poor salesman nervous vibe about him in round one. Although both of the two they did improve as the policy presentations went forward. But this time, there was no real strong signs of nervousness in any of the candidates, you know, and I thought they all more or less held their own. Now, as far as content, I think what was interesting is what was discussed and also what wasn't. Now, keep in mind that there's two, they had the, the sort of the normal part where the reporters from five different outlets prepared questions for the candidates. But then they had this interesting thing, which I don't think is all that common, is that then they had the candidates prepare questions for the other two candidates, which I think is an interesting way of going about it. So overall, the big issue was China and issues related to it, which includes things like, you know, national defense and things like that. But China was, you know, maybe 60, 70 percent of the content. The second big issue was the properties owned by the candidates because William Lai's house, which was built before they had any laws and rules, and it's on land that's in a mining district that's in a gray area. And then, but then there were renovations done after the law. And so it's in this really gray area. Um, then you have Coenza, who owns a plot of farmland, and he was renting it out to tour bus companies as a parking lot because it was covered in concrete. 
which he wasn't legally allowed to do, so he's had to rip it up. And then Lies Mining House, he wants to donate it to charity, but it doesn't even have legal status, so that's in limbo. And then uh, Hoyoe has been facing a lot of allegations, um, or accusations, I should say, of basically price-gouging students um, by charging really high rents in a condominium a building that he owns, and they partition them up into smaller units and then rent them out to students. But it's also going through a real estate management company. And that real estate management company has been bumping up the rents 5% per year. And so the rents have just gotten more and more and more unaffordable for these students. So again, this is another situation. Well, you know, Kuh said that he, when he bought the land, he, he bought it sight unseen. Right? He had no mm-hmm. idea about the legal status. But they spent an almost disturbing amount of time talking about these personal properties and hurling accusations at each other. Now, there was some other policy issues touched upon, but I was surprised at how little things like the declining birth rate, there's very little appearance, little to none of that. Economic issues are surprisingly low. There was very little talk of that. There was just a little bit. And so there's all the domestic issues. There's a little bit on energy, but primarily the questions that were asked were related to China-related issues in one form or another. And the candidates, when they would be giving answers on questions that were often on a different subject, they'd finish their answer on that. And then with the remaining time, would talk about stuff related to China. So that was a a really major uh, element uh, of the debate. Right. And so could you talk a little bit more about how they presented their position on China, each of the candidates, since that was such a big topic of discussion? Well, okay, William Leib has explicitly and repeatedly said that he's just going to continue with Tsai Ing-wen's current policies, which are actually popular with the public. So, uh, you know, he wants to maintain a very pro-U.S. stance, diversify Taiwan's economy into Southeast Asia. Um, But he's a little bit softer sounding uh, than he himself used to sound. And even um, Tsai Ing-wen sounds, uh, he's talked a little bit more about trying to have dialogue and he, he talks about how he'd like to sit down with Xi Jinping over a, over a plate of uh, shrimp fried rice <laughs> and a bubble tea. Um, but essentially it's, it's just more of the same. Now, Hoyoi, he wants to revive the 1992 consensus. By the way, for those unfamiliar with the 1992 consensus, we had Michael Turden on as a guest in episode 257 to talk about what the term 1992 consensus refers to and the controversy surrounding it. So the problem is that Ho, because he knows it's unpopular, he's trying to put some qualifications around it. So, for example, he says, well, he's against independence. Well, that's no surprise. He's KMT. But (laughs) he also says he absolutely is opposed to one country, two systems. Now, the problem is that Xi Jinping himself, on January 2nd, 2019, tied the one country, two systems to the 1992 consensus. And then he also further qualifies his support for the 1992 consensus by saying that it is defined by the ROC Constitution. Of course, the ROC Constitution gives sovereignty to the Republic of China, not 
the People's Republic of China. So it's a country with sovereign territory called the Republic of China. So again, by ruling out one country, two systems, and saying that he's going to go with, you know, the constitution of the Republic of China, he's suggesting that he's completely ruling out unification at least anytime soon. But the 1992 consensus comes with one China. The one China principle is baked into it. So I don't even know, you know, whether the Chinese side would be willing to negotiate with him. He also wants to bring back the cross-strait services pact. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to editorialize on this and say it is a nightmare. Um, it is <laughs> terrifying because it would allow the Chinese side to come in and take over media, publishing, advertising. So what publications they don't outright take over, they can dominate them through ad spending. They even get things like movie theaters so they can control the movies that are watched. Mm-hmm. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on and on. And of course, there's not a hard distinction between the private sector and the government in China. So right. if you know the CCP says, okay, you're a media company here in China, go buy that in Taiwan. And they can't say no. They have to say yes. So it would be opening the door wide open. I mean, you know, there's a lot of talk about being worried about China trying to subvert the election through, you know, social media and a couple of media outlets that they have some control over. But this would, you know, they wouldn't even have to worry about all these small little schemes that they're using now because they just own the media here outright. So anyway, that's absolutely terrifying. And now for a short break. Talking Taiwan is the longest-running Taiwan-related podcast and currently the only independently produced Taiwanese-American English-language podcast in the world that covers political news related to Taiwan. And we're getting ready to take the show on the road back to Taiwan in January to cover Taiwan's presidential election and to interview some special guests while we're there. We're calling it the Talking Taiwan Election Tour, and we'd like to thank all of our generous donors and supporters who have helped us to reach our first fundraising goal of $5,000, which will be doubled to $10,000 by Patrick Huang. This means that we are nearly halfway to reaching our overall fundraising goal of $25,000. We'll be working with seasoned political commentator Courtney Donovan-Smith, who will be sharing his analysis of Taiwan's presidential candidate debate. In fact, that will be our first episode of the new year. In January, we'll be headed to Taiwan, where we'll be meeting with Courtney in Taichung for some pre-election coverage. And then, of course, there will also be a post-election discussion episode. There's still time for you to support the Talking Taiwan election tour. Help us get the show on the road by making a contribution to our GoFundMe campaign or at TalkingTaiwan.com forward slash support. We thank you for your support. You make what we do possible. Now, back to the episode. Right. Cohen is confused. I don't really (laughs) think he understands cross-strait relations very well. He is smart in the sense that he says it has no moral core is the problem with it. He says the reason that he's not going with the 1992 consensus is because, quote, there is no market for it in Taiwan, by which he means it's unpopular. Right. But he doesn't really have any problem with the 1992 consensus except that it's unpopular. So, you know, it's not because, like, for example, William Lai absolutely will not, and Tsai Ing-wen absolutely not accept the 1992 consensus because of the one China principle part of it. And 
you know, the idea is to protect sovereignty. Holyoke and the KMT traditionally is, you know, or at least since the early 2000s, has, you could say, at least it has a principle to it that they want eventual unification. There's an overarching ideology. Whereas with Ke, it's, oh, it's just not popular enough. Uh, you know, so he wants to come up with a new formulation. The problem with that is that the CCP is not going to accept any new formulation that does not include the one China principle in it. You could mm -hmm. call it Bob, you know, but the Bob consensus will have to come with there is one China, period. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, th those are their basic stances. Um, this is the one thing that he said. He wants to negotiate a new trade pact, not exactly the one before. It's, I think that's what his new stance is. But he says he wants the cross-strait oversight bill that's been stalled in the legislature for a long time. He wants that to pass first, which that if the services pack was a good idea, then, you know, then yes, that would also be a good idea. But he joined the Sunflower Movement back in 2014. Mm -hmm. And during the debate, he claimed that the Sunflower Movement, what they were opposing was not the services trade pact, but black box political dealings, meaning opaque backroom dealings. The reality is that the protesters were against both. Right. And making the rounds on the internet t today after the debate, there's actually a picture showing him sitting there with the protesters during the Sunflower protests, holding a sign opposing the services trade pact. So he tried to rewrite that history there. He also had some very kind of odd, disjointed comments about the United States and the pilgrims and the Qing dynasty. But anyway, <laughs> but that had nothing to do with cross-strait relations particularly. I asked Courtney about each candidate's position on extending or shortening military service. For obvious reasons, William Lai supports extending the conscription to one year. Cohen just has said that not only does he support that, but it might be worth considering extending it even longer. Cohen says that he would consider extending it longer than a yes. year? Oh, interesting. He actually, of the three candidates, talks the most hawkish game on uh, national defense. You know, he, he talks about it a fair bit. Um, he puts in hard lines. We've got to bring up national defense spending up to 3% of GDP, which, mm -hmm. incidentally, Tsai Ing-wen said back in 2015 <laughs> and has not accomplished yet, uh, although she has raised it up from under 2% to about 2.5. I don't recall a lie putting a specific number on it, but just that it needs to be steadily and continuously increased. Ho has kind of hinted at also that now he's kind of on board with the 3% thing as well and started to sound a little bit more hawkish. But specifically to answer your question about conscription, Ho initially said that he was against extending conscription. Some say that it was pressure from the Americans. Frankly, I think it was opinion polling that showed that it was that the majority of the public was behind extending it to one year. I think that was the deciding factor, not AIT. So then he reversed himself and he said, okay, no, I think it does need to go up to one year, but you know, how long that remains depends on tensions and the situation in the Taiwan Strait. And if we can bring down the tensions, then we can bring down the conscription back to four months. 
Would you like to comment about the other things that were touched upon? You said, aside from the China issue, they talked a little bit about nuclear power and about housing. Well, it wasn't terribly interesting, and their policies on housing are frankly not all that different from each other. Mm -hmm. Um, They all come from the same ideological place. They did talk about the death penalty. William lies against it. Hoyui was the one who brought it up and uh, said that the accused basically the TPP of being hypocritical in theory, being against it, but continuing to hold executions. And Ho is strongly for the death penalty. Not a surprise there, being an ex-cop. And then Ke weighed in saying that he was for life imprisonment rather than the death penalty. So, I mean, they talked about energy, but there's nothing really new brought up. It's the same stale arguments. Um, obviously, William Lai wants to continue the phase out by to the end of 2025 of nuclear power. He has softened the DPP position a little bit. In May, he suggested possibly mothballing uh, one or two of the nuclear power plants and then restarting them in an emergency. And he's also said that he's open to the idea of new nuclear power technologies in the future if they're proven safe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then Ho wants to reopen the first and the closed units in number two and number three. And he wants to look into finishing the uncompleted fourth nuclear power plant. So he wants all hands on deck on the nuclear side. And then Ke, he wants to keep the first nuclear power plant shut. But he wants to keep the existing number two and number three, which some of the units in those nuclear power plants are already being shut down, but the plants are still somewhat operating. He wants to keep them going. And he said he'd be willing to look into conducting a study on whether it made any sense or not to go forward with the fourth nuclear power plant. So those are their stances. All of them want a mix of renewables you know, zero carbon by 2050, but they disagree somewhat on the plans on how to get there. The pro-nuclear argument made by Ho and particularly Ke is it's a national security issue because Taiwan, for example, you know, only has like a couple of weeks reserves of natural gas. So if there was a blockade, for example, obviously nuclear power would be a better bet, assuming that the People's Liberation Army didn't blow them up. (laughs) Just as a side note, I actually don't think the People's Liberation Army would blow up the nuclear power plants. I think they just blow up the infrastructure that connects them to the grid. That's easier. Blow out transformers, knock down pylons and that kind of thing. Cheaper and easier. And then if they actually win and take over the country, then nuclear power plants that they can boot up pretty quickly once they fix the infrastructure. But that's just my theory. Right. And you said the three of them seem to have similar policies on what to do about housing. Could you summarize what that is? Yeah. You know, it's raised taxes on, you know, speculators and hoarders who have tons of properties, tinkering with the tax code so that if you have multiple properties, you get taxed more. Mm-hmm. And if you don't rent them out and leave them empty, which a lot of these wealthy owners do, they don't bother renting them out. They're just empty. Um, you know, they want to play with the tax code and the regulations, and it's all ideologically very, very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, Ho wants to extend interest-free loans of, what was it, up to $15 million for young people for X number of years. You know, but it's all basically a mix of subsidies, regulations, 
playing with the tax code. And so, you know, it's just, they're not ideologically all that different. They're, they, they differ slightly in the details, but there's not any dramatic conceptual difference between them all. So it seems like there is a lot left out in terms of addressing domestic concerns. And I've heard that a lot of the younger voters are more concerned with domestic issues rather than the whole cross-strait issue. What do you make of that? I think that they do care about the China issue. I think they also care about domestic issues. But kind of at the end of the day, you know, they may say that they're very concerned about these issues, and I'm sure they are because it's their futures that they're concerned about. I wonder how complacent they are, though, because China is an issue, and it's an existential one. You know, do I get a better salary or cheaper housing in the future, or is my country bombed into smithereens and invaded and turned into, you know, East Turkestan with labor prison camps and concentration camps and, you know, loss of all your freedom? And, you know, and in that scenario, I think their incomes would probably drop as well. They might have cheaper housing, though, if they're in a concentration camp. <laughs> we also talked about how Taiwan Plus televised the debate with English translation. That was kind of helpful for me where I, I, I had very mixed feelings about the English because they did a great job. That's not the issue. It's that on the one hand, if I watch them as is without any you know interpreters talking over them, mm -hmm. I, I think I can get a little bit more of the emotion, a little bit more of the intensity, a bit more of the vibe. But once they switch into speaking Taiwanese, it's like my comprehension. I understand pretty much everything in the Mandarin, you know, like 90, 95%, depending on the topic, some topics, it's hundred percent, some topics, you know, a little bit less. Um, but then, you know, they start speaking Taiwanese and of course my comprehension drops to like, you know, 15% or 20% at best. <laughs> you know? so, Did they you know, speak a lot of Taiwanese in the debate? Yeah. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, Hoyui did, like, for example, much of his presentation was in Taiwanese. Uh, his, you know, yeah. initial speech. And he, he's been using a lot of Taiwanese, like in the policy presentations and, yes, you know, on the I've stump. Heard that. Um, That's very interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's some strategic thinking behind this because yes. you'll notice that his, his poll numbers were in the low 20s. And then, you know, when the negotiations come up with a, a unity opposition ticket fell through. Um, a lot of people thought that that was what ha happened next, and his polls went up significantly. I actually don't attribute it, it to that. It may be partially due to that. But what I think the ma the major factor was is they went with two deep blues in key positions. In other words, they picked Zhao Shaokang, who was one of the founders of the new party. <laughs> you know, So that's how blue he is. Um, as the vice presidential candidate, and they went with Han Guoyu, who is, of course, very deep blue, put him on the number one slot on the party list, which usually when they do that, when the KMT does that, not necessarily other parties, but when the KMT does that, that usually signals that's their candidate for legislative speaker. Now, prior to those two moves, Ho's support in the polling among self-identified KMT members Depending on the poll, but most of them had him around two thirds, seventy percent. 
And the other two candidates, it was like 85 to 95% from the self-identified DPP and self-identified TPP. As soon as they announced those two changes, his support, using Formosa, for example, like almost right after it, his support among self-identified KMT supporters jumped to 90%. So really what it did is it solidified the base. And that's why I thought he got the big jump in the poll numbers. Um, you know, yes, Kowenja did not come out of that mess looking very good. But I don't think that's what drove a lot of the people to the whole jaw ticket. I think it was the consolidation of the base was the big primary thing that boosted them in the polls. Right. So you're saying the fact that he's speaking more Taiwanese, you don't think is what affected his polling numbers? So here's the thing. I mean, and Zhao Shaokang, his vice presidential candidate, laid out mm -hmm. a strategy. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if this is their official strategy or this is what he hopes the strategy will be. Mm -hmm. But anyway, he said the strategy is for himself to focus on North Taiwan, which is traditionally more blue, a lot more people from 49er families who fled the mm -hmm. Chinese Civil War. And that Ho would work to consolidate the South, mm -hmm. primarily Hokkien speaking, you know, the families who've been in Taiwan for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. So as he comes out into these, you know, policy discussions and, and the debate, you know, he's leaning in heavily on the fact that he's Taiwanese now that the deep blue base is shored up. So now what he's trying to do is move into the Hoklo speaking majority and try and peel off some of those voters from Ke. He's probably not going to get that many from Lai, but he might get those undecideds and he might get some of Ko's supporters. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, that's the strategy and the strategic thinking. Mm -hmm. He didn't entirely speak Taiwanese. Of course, he spoke, you know, a decent right. amount of Mandarin as well. Right. But he leaned in quite heavily on the Taiwanese. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the reports are saying surprisingly for a KMT candidate to speak so much Taiwanese. I want to thank you for taking the time out to share your thoughts on the candidates so far and the presidential debate. And we will be looking forward to having you on closer to the election, probably like a week before the actual election to share some more thoughts. Yeah, and I look forward to it. I've been speaking to Courtney Donovan-Smith, about the presidential debate that was held between Taiwan's three presidential candidates, Lai Ching-de of the Democratic Progressive Party, Ho Yi of the Kuomintang, and Ko Wen-se of the Taiwan People's Party. So what are you waiting for? To support the Talking Taiwan election tour, visit TalkingTaiwan.com forward slash support or share this episode with a friend. Now it's time for you to show us some love. Rate us on Spotify, or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Audible, leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There we'll list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.